As a parent, I've found that two of the most important influencers or shapers in my children's lives are their fears and their loves. As a parent, my task is to continuously help my children fear the right things and love the right things. If you've ever had children, you know that children have a plethora of strange fears. And they also have an irrational boldness about other things. For example, a three-year-old might be afraid of a harmless pile of clothes and toys in the closet that in just the right light makes the terrifying silhouette of a monster. The remedy for this strange fear, at least in our house, is to say out loud, there's nothing to be afraid of in as deep a voice as possible, followed by a careful inspection of the harmless pile. Now, this fear of harmless things in the dark becomes a brash boldness in the light. While the pile of clothes and toys in the closet may not harm my child, attempting a ninja flip off the top of the couch will. So as a dad, it is my sworn duty to help my children not fear their own closets, but to have a healthy fear of gravity. The same could be said about what my children love. Just as children have irrational fears, they also have irrational loves. One example is when the child loves the box more than the expensive toy that, it, that came in it. Another example is when you put your, uh, in front of your child this beautiful rotisserie chicken or this grilled steak that mama has lovingly put together and they ask for Cheerios. Again, as a father, it is my duty to show them that grilled steak is worthier of love than dry, starchy bunch of circles that can also be used as potty training tools. <laughs> Constant parenting. Loving the right things, fearing the right things. Not fearing shadows, fearing gravity. Not loving Cheerios, loving steak. As humorous as these examples may be, I find it interesting how often my own irrational fears and misplaced loves affect my discipleship. Like a child in the dark, I am often frightened by harmless shadows and not frightened enough of things like sin. I sometimes love lesser things like binge-watching Netflix, uh, scrolling down social media for hours on end and neglecting the better things like scripture memory or to start off the best of my day in uh, Bible devotion. Now, as we will see from Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 42, discipleship is a delicate mixture of fearing the right things and loving the right things. Put plainly, disciples fear only God and love Christ supremely. Disciples fear only God and love Christ supremely. Those are the two goals of discipleship as we walk with Jesus. Now let's just lay the context again. We're, we're still in this second discourse in Jesus' second sermon. And he has just dropped a bomb on the heads of his disciples by telling them that he sends them out as sheep among wolves. They will be opposed, oppressed, and quite possibly, quite likely killed. And Jesus pointedly warned them, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now those are heavy words to, in, in any account. That's, that's terrifying to think that you're going to be a minority in the world because of your faith and that you're going to be hated by all, sought out, pursued, and oppressed. 
These words are in counter to most of our conventional discipleship programs in the modern day, don't they? I want you just for imagine, to imagine a moment, I'm quite tempted to do this, to go to our church website and to just completely change what we say about our church. Now, what we typically say about our church is, Grace Church, a great place to live together and do discipleship together. And we give our statement of faith and we, and we put up the happy pictures of children playing in the, in the nursery. But let's just scrap all that and let's just kind of come, let's take Jesus' approach. Join us as we worship Jesus. It'll be the most challenging thing you've ever done, and it'll quite likely feel like torture. You will be hated by everyone, even your neighbor, and quite possibly your family. But, good news, if they kill you, you're blessed. See you at 1030. That veers quite differently from the way we would say, what we would say about discipleship, right? Right? Or what we would, how we would call people to follow Jesus. But Jesus, right at the front, calls them to self-execution, to, to carrying a cross. He, he uses this morbid image of the cross, as we'll see, is not this beautiful symbol of Christianity, but actually a symbol of death and, and the worthiness of suffering for Jesus Christ. I think this. I think modern Christians, and quite possibly most of us, underestimate the cost of following Jesus. But we also undervalue the prize of giving up our whole life to be with him. Let me just say that again. Modern Christians underestimate the cost of following Jesus. But we also undervalue the prize of giving up all in order to be with him. Now naturally such a warning that we're going to be hated and that we might die and that people will oppose us and oppress us and persecute us. It causes one to stir up all kinds of fears. It causes us to challenge our most treasured loves. What if following Jesus puts me in an unpopular position with my friends and neighbors? What if people start calling me a radical or what if like Shivam, my granddad tries to burn me at the stake? What if my child is called to the mission field and, and that they don't live out what I see as their true potential to be an entrepreneur? What if someday it costs me my life? What if someday it costs me a fine? What if someday it costs me my most prized possessions? All these questions are implicitly addressed in the final section of Jesus' missional discourse. The first half of the section is simply Jesus telling his disciples, fear the right thing. So in verses 26 through 33, that's the main point that we're going to see. Fear the right thing. Now, I'm going to call you all to humility because you're Texans. And so anytime we talk about fear, we get this tombstone-type accent. I ain't scared of nothing, right? You're all scared of something. I've seen you scared of something. I follow you on Facebook. Let me just tell you, you scared. So I think it's important for us to ask the question, Do we fear the right thing? So that's the first half. The second half, verses 34 through 42, deals with our love. Do we love the right things? Do we love the right things? And so as we approach this section, I'm just asking you to humbly consider your own discipleship. Consider your own commitment and walk with the Lord. Consider your fears and your loves. Now this isn't I understand I'm battling against 
hours and hours and hours and hours of news media that has stirred up your fears and tried to draw your love in a different direction. So as a pastor, it's impossible for me in 35 minutes to do adequate battle against all the ways the world has stirred up your fears and stirred up your love. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit now, and I'm asking him to light a bomb off in your life so that you can consider, do you fear what you should? Do you love who you should? So let's just look at the first question. Do I fear the right thing? Do I fear only God? Having just warned of the wolves, Jesus continues, so have no fear of them. Now, the word fear appears four times in six verses. Now, for Bible scholars, that's a lot. That means that this is the main point of this section. Jesus is addressing fear. In the first use of the word, it's important to say, we quote this so often, Jesus does not, misquote this so often, Jesus does not say, do not fear in this section. He says that in other places. But he doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, do not fear. He says, do not fear them. Later, he adds, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The problem is not so much fear itself as it is who we fear. He doesn't go to war against our fear in this passage. In fact, he encourages fear but he discourages fearing the wrong people. Rather than fearing men who have limited power, Jesus tells his disciples to fear God who is sovereign over all. Men may have limited ability to take your money, break your bones, or even kill you, but they have no capacity to change your eternal future with the Lord. They have a very limited power. God, on the other hand, has dominion over both the body and the soul. It's a complete, all-encompassing sovereignty. And here's the reality. Our bodies will die anyway. So what lasting effect can men do in the meantime? In the 1800s, one of my favorite, favorite missionaries um, to ever read about, John G. Patton, was preparing to take his new bride. He basically went to his father-in-law's house, and he said, hey, I want to marry your daughter and take her, take her to an island filled with cannibals. The father-in-law said, okay. <laughs> Don't know what that says about his relationship with his daughter. But John G. Patton takes his new bride and the gospel to the New Hebrides. It's an island chain whose inhabitants were violent and one of the things that they would do is after they defeated their enemies is they'd cook them alive, just cook them up, okay, and, and eat them. It was a power statement. Everybody knew this. Just months before, a British ship had, had landed there, and an entire tribe wiped out these British men and ate them. And so John G. Patton says, I'm called to go there. Well, just before he leaves his church, he's saying goodbye to his church. Just want you to imagine, you know, John, John G. Patton being in our church and some of the things we'd say to him knowing that he's on his way to a cannibalistic island, might possibly be killed. Um, this one old man walks up and he scoffs at the idea of taking the gospel to New Hebrides. He says this, you'll be eaten by cam- cannibals. I mean, this is a guy who has no filter, obviously, right? But he just walks up and tells Patton, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. That's his parting shot as he goes. Well, Patton, true to his calling and having a sharp wit, he says this, Mr. Dixon, I love how he keeps him anonymous at the beginning and then says his name in his reply. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. 
I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. This is the type of resolute fearlessness of men that Jesus expects of his disciples. Resolute fearlessness of men. Whether it's something as small as the assassination of our reputation, or whether it's something as uncomfortable as us giving up our own expert opinions about everything that's going on, just to follow the word of God, if it's an actual formal execution, it's a resolute fearlessness of men that looks into the eyes of men, knowing that God has dominion even over them, and not to be swayed from our faith. Because fear of man is not what God has for his disciples. The difference between the two could not be more drastic. A human cannot make himself or herself live even one second longer than God intends. You cannot add one second to your life, and by logic, no one could take your life one second before God intends for it to happen. We are passively helpless about all kinds of things. You are helpless about what you run over in the road and pop your tire. You are helpless about your lifespan. You are helpless about your future. You are helpless about whatever maladies might be growing in your body at this very moment without you even knowing it. You are simply helpless. God, however, is completely sovereign. He has power over whatever maladies are growing in your body without you knowing it. He has power over whatever it is you run over the road and pop your tire. He has sovereignty over all the men who threaten to harm you and hurt you and kill you and hate you. So Jesus continues this logic. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. His argument is simple. God cares for the birds. And not even a bird falls to the ground. That means it dies without him. I had a powerful reminder of this um, probably six months back. I was just about to leave. I was standing at the glass doors right out front talking to Alice. And smack, bird hit straight through our clean window. Fell to the ground. Jesus is saying that doesn't even happen without God. I think that was completely random, right? That was completely out of nowhere, right? Who's sovereign over that? And yet Jesus claims that not even a bird, this little sparrow, falls to the ground without God. How much more can we not die unless our God who numbers the hairs on our head makes it so? How many of us would want something God doesn't want? God is so sovereign. He is so powerful. Even over half-cent birds, that he is sovereign over the priceless lives of his people. You are far more valuable than half-cent birds. And so Jesus concludes this, fear not. Can I say it again? For those of you who have been angry, scared, frustrated, stirred up, Let me just read Jesus' words to you again. Fear not. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
Now, sadly, in our fearfulness of men, we neglect to enjoy the sweetness of God's fatherly care for us. How many sleepless nights that God has meant to give to us as a sweet moment of rest for us to be able to close our eyes and know that he is sovereign and the world will keep spinning long after we lose consciousness God gives us night after night as a gift, just rest in his sovereign fatherly care. And yet, how many nights have we lost because of the last thing we saw on Facebook? Or because of the last bit of news that we watched? Our fearfulness of men causes us to miss out on lots of fatherly gifts. My son wants to go hiking badly. Like there was nothing else to do. And I intend as a good father to give my children good gifts like that, like a long hike. But what do I expect from them? Don't fear the bugs when you go out there. I've, I've braced them for it. Son, there are crickets, there are grasshoppers, there are wasps, there are, there are things bigger than that. But daddy will take care of you. You just walk with me and enjoy the walk and we'll have a good time. Nothing could break my heart more than my son not wanting to go on a hike with me because he's afraid of coming across a Texas tarantula. Daddy will take care of it. Just come enjoy the hike. But how many of us don't even go on the hike anymore because there are bugs out there? Do you know how nasty those little creatures are? And so we miss out on our time with our father. We miss out on the good gifts that God has intended us. My friends, the worst thing they can do is send you home to your father. It's not meant to be some false bravado. Some, some of you, I think, maybe rightly, I don't know. I'll be humble enough to, know, I, to not know myself. Um, some of you don't think I'm afraid enough of the future. And I'll toss the tennis ball back and say, I think some of you are too fearful of the future. It's not just some false bravado. I'm scared of death just like all of you. I have sat in a PSB police station and been interrogated and was terrified, sweating, crying at some points. I hate to even admit that, but was sitting there alone. They bring you in. They make you sit there. You feel like you're in a doctor's office, and the police come in. They say, your interrogator will be in just a minute, and they make you wait. Never been in anything like that. I just kind of sat there, and I frightfully cried, <laughs> shaken. It's not just some false bravado, but it is this moment when it actually comes. The interrogator walks in the room. I slap a smile in my face. He threatens to keep our son and kick us out of the country, and I tell him, good luck, declaring World War III. And then we end up being taken care of. God took care of us. We were out of the country. We were kept safe. There was nothing to fear in that moment because God was sovereign over man. So I'm not calling you to some kind of false bravado, I'm telling you, do not fear the creatures more than you fear the creator. He's the one that has sovereignty. We waste our fears on the wrong people. That's the problem. Consider how contradictory this is in your life. Are we afraid of friends and neighbors with the gospel? Uh, are, we, are we afraid of offending our friends and neighbors with the message of the gospel, but not afraid of offending God with our spiritual neglect? We know he commanded us to share the gospel, right? 
Now, if I were just to, if you were to be 100% honest people and I were to be a completely jerk of a pastor and say, how many of you in the last six months have shared the gospel with someone? I'm not talking about handing a track. I'm not talking about putting your favorite politician sign out in your yard. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the message of Jesus dying for sin, being buried in a tomb and raising again and coming back to reign as king. And that's why they should repent of sin. If I were to ask how many people in the last six months have shared that message with their neighbor, I wonder how many of us, being completely honest, would stand up. Oh, but you don't know my neighbor. He's kind of a grouch. My neighbor's actually sitting here today. You don't know my, you don't know my family member. You don't know how mean they can be. My friends, are we, are we more afraid of offending people than we are of offending God? We quiver at mere shadows in the closets of our nation's politics. I mean, I've seen this. I, I'm not calling anybody conspiracy theorists. I'm just simply saying a mere shadow, even if it were true, even if it's real, we quiver at mere shadows in the closets of our nation's politics, but we're not afraid of the snakes lurking in our own lives, in our search histories, in our secret fantasies, in our subtle obsessions, in our private addictions, in our bad attitudes toward people. We're not afraid of our own sin, but we're afraid of whatever shadows might be lurking in there. It's an irrational fear, and then it's not a healthy fear. Is it possible we fear what finite people might someday say to us or tell us? They say to us, we cannot worship God anymore. Let's just suppose they say that. And yet, right now, in the lives of many of us, there are idols that are blocking our worship anyway. My friends, you cannot lose what you have already willingly forfeited. Do we fret at the intolerance of humanity toward our faith? Do we fret over the Nancy Pelosi's and the different people that I've heard mentioned in these names? And yet, we don't fret over God's lack of tolerance for unfaithful discipleship. I mean, we're terrified. We got lots of boogeymans in our closet, right? Whether it's Nancy Pelosi, whether it's Putin and Russia, we've got lots of shadows moving in the closets, and yet we'll do a 360 ninja flip straight into sin. We just do not fear the right things. God made Putin, God can kill Putin. God raised him to the throne, God can bring him to nothing. But your sin is far more dangerous than any Russian nuclear warhead that could ever go off. Because it does eternal damage to your soul. We do not fear the right things. I make bold because I've had to preach this sermon to myself for five straight days. And it's about time somebody else gets beat up. Well, how can we tell? <laughs> How can we tell if we fear men more than God? Well, simply consider how committed you are to sharing the gospel. I, I am I'm bothered by this, by this tension in 
in American Christianity that we really do put evangelism on the back burner. We really do put talking about Jesus publicly on the back burner. As if, yeah, we know we should, but don't make that the, the thing that makes us faithful Christians. Well, I don't have to make it the thing because Jesus made it the thing. In this whole discussion, discussion about fearing men, right next to it is this uh, command to be bold to proclaim the gospel. So how do you know if you have an unhealthy fear of men? Simply ask yourself, how committed are you to share the gospel? Again, ask yourself, when was the last time you shared the gospel? Ask yourself, who did you share the gospel with clearly in the last six months? My friends, we are called to be gospel-centered people. We have been commissioned and sent out to proclaim the good news to the world. That is our one and only job. And yet we do it unfaithfully because of our fear. Jesus commands his disciples to not fear the wolves. And then he says this, For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And with that, Jesus tells them again not to be afraid of those who can merely kill the body. The terms covered, hidden, and dark all have to do with this redemptive mystery that's been, uh, been hidden for the whole Old Testament period. Um, Jesus wasn't revealed to the Old Testament. They didn't know it would be uh, a, a, Na- a Nazareth carpenter who would come and die on a cross and then raise again in three days. They only saw glimpses and pictures and hints, but it was a mystery to them. In 1 Peter, Peter says this, that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Paul comes on to talk about the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. My friends, let me just put this plainly for you. If you know the gospel, you know something that literally thousands of people in generations past have waited to know. God has uncovered the secret of redemption for us. He has shown us the face of Christ. He has shown us the plan of redemption in Jesus, that Jesus would come not as a conquering military king, but as a suffering servant, would die on the cross, be buried, and be raised again, and then secure resurrection for the rest of us, and then would come back to reign over all the earth. That is a mystery that was once covered that has now been unveiled. Now, what do we do when we don't share the gospel? Well, we throw the blanket back on the secret. We cover it back up. We bury it. We do what Jesus talks about, that little, that song that my children like to sing. What's that, what's that song called? This little light of mine, right? We talk about putting it under a bushel, and we don't do that, do we? Because light's meant to be seen. Jesus has uncovered the gospel because he intends for it to be heard. Jesus has revealed the truth of the mystery of redemption because he intends for it to be made known. How many of us have failed to make known what God says must be known? Your task as believers, your one and only job and commission is to make Christ known, to know Jesus and to make him known. That is all that matters in all of eternity. 
to know Jesus and to make him known. We might do lots of other things, but they're subservient and less than that one mission, to know Jesus, to know him well, to become friends with him, to submit ourselves under his kingship, to love him even more and more every day, to see his power and his glory manifested in our lives as we continue to wage war against sin, and then to see that replicated in the lives of others. In the end... Our unfaithfulness to proclaim the gospel reveals our lack of commitment to Jesus. Do you want to hear how dangerous this is? This is why evangelism does not need to be put on the back burner. You may think, like I have in the past, I'm a relatively decent person. I don't do these certain things, and I don't do that certain thing, and I do this certain thing, and I read and I pray. I I just don't like sharing the gospel because I'm altogether shy, or I don't like proclaiming the truth to my neighbor because of how I might think they might take me. Well, listen to Jesus' words, and you see if he mints his words here. So everyone who acknowledged me, that means confesses, proclaims. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. That's bold. Add to that the the counter to that. But but whoever denies me, which in context means whoever's silent about this uncovered thing, whoever doesn't speak, because denying, being quiet and not sharing the gospel is the same as not proclaiming and revealing the gospel to others. So if you're silent, you're denying the one, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, what does this have to do with fear? How many of us want acknowledgement from men? Absolutely, I do. I'll tell you, I'm bold in the pulpit, but then when I get around into uh, my, my, my son's baseball team and get around a whole bunch of dads who don't know Jesus, I'm suddenly a kitten, I'm scared. Kind of back off a little bit, don't I? Grace Church shirt's great to preach in, but man, it makes it awkward to wear to baseball games. We're just that way, Right? We're fearful, but here's the reality. Jesus is saying that men might not acknowledge you. They might deny you here. They may not like you here. They may say a few unhelpful, temporary, powerless spats against you. And yet, Jesus' acknowledgement has eternal ramifications. Jesus' acknowledgement has eternal. I tell my kids this all the time. Don't bother about what your classmates say about you. Here's what your daddy and your mommy say about you. Because... What we think about them far exceeds what any five-year-old, seven-year-old says about them. It's the same way. Jesus' words, Jesus' acknowledgement holds far more weight than any man's. And yet, so often, we just assume that acknowledgement's going to come despite all of our unfaithfulness, despite kicking mud on his name, despite remaining silent about the gospel he's given us. And my friends, Jesus tells us, don't make that assumption. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but that faith is manifested by an overwhelming spring of passion for the gospel. It manifests itself. If it hasn't manifested itself, it is, a, it is time for your faith to come to maturity. It's time for your faith to be made strong so that it can now manifest itself in the lives of those around you. So just be honest with yourself. Do you fear the right person after all of that talk or do you fear people? 
Do we fear fleeting shadows in the night but fail to feel the gravity of our own sin? True discipleship in your life means having the right object of fear. Put the all-powerful, holy, sovereign creator of all who made moose and bears and mountains and the deepest valley in the ocean and who made your most harsh, strictest, most evil enemy, put him at the top, at the center of your fear and fear the right person. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, in addition to not always fearing the right things, we do not always love the right things. So you may, not, you may say, I don't have a fear problem. I'm not feared of man. I ain't scared, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I can almost bet you we all have had problems with love issues, right? Loving the right things. Jesus addresses this in the next section. In case anyone thinks it's possible to live comfortably with the world and, and to uh, be able to gather this great cohort of people who love us despite their feelings about Jesus and then to also live comfortably with Christ, Jesus warns, do not think I have come to bring peace to the, to the earth. That almost doesn't sound like scripture, does it? I mean, this is not something that we're going to quote that often, right? I mean, put that on your memory. What do you call those little battle, battle verses that you have? Yeah, just imagine. I need some encouragement today. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's not something that's going to be on my list of encouraging memory verses. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. As strange as it sounds, this is exactly what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. But don't misunderstand him. Jesus in other places does talk about the peace that he has brought. Jesus in other places does talk about peace to the earth. In fact, his birth is announced with angels declaring peace to the world. But here's the thing. It's not the kind of peace that the world wants. Jesus has come to bring peace, just not the kind of peace everybody tends to talk about. When people talk about world peace, it typically is wrapped up with these ideas in which all humanity goes on doing what it wants, happily getting together and playing in material abundance and prosperity without ever reckoning the Creator's sovereign authority in their lives. They want world peace absent from God. There will never be world peace absent from God. There will never be serenity and harmony and all these things that we say that we long for outside of God. And so because the world doesn't want that kind of peace, they don't want peace and shalom with God, they want something else. It's because of that that humanity divides itself up into two. Those who love God, those who don't. Love for Christ, moreover, demands such loyalty that it is capable of setting a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Ouch. You know, if anyone ever came to you and said, you know what, to be friends with me, you have to be so loyal that you'd be willing to leave your son or your daughter to follow me. I'm not sure how many of us would actually have followed that person. But Jesus says that. In the ancient world, father and son relationships were the most intimate and most important of relationships. And yet Jesus says, your relationship with me supersedes that. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's Jesus speaking. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Not loving father or mother, son or daughter more than Christ. It's a quote from Micah 7, 6, which in context speaks of not trusting in men and trusting in God alone. When it comes to the Son of God, no one ranks over him. Not your father, not your mother, not your son, not your daughter, not your political stance, not your opinion. Only Jesus. When there's a why in the road between Jesus and anything else, we follow Jesus. That's the kind of loyalty we must have. There, there is nothing too sacred to put on the altar for Jesus. There is nothing too priceless. Either we treasure him as the pearl beyond all price, willing to go and sell all in order to have that pearl, or else we do not really treasure Jesus in the way that we should. It was a painful painful realization in my heart this week that I have lots of things in my life that I try to protect from the altar. I let him survey and I'm like, hold off, hold off. Not, not these things, but you can use these things. My friends, in the last six months, I'll just be honest with you. I've had to face the fear of losing friends and church members because of my belief in what the Bible says. There have been people in our church who don't want me to say things about standing for racial reconciliation, standing against abortion, sharing the gospel, not putting hopes in political leaders, but to be firmly in Christ. And again, I've never ever said anything to anyone that we shouldn't have political views or we shouldn't vote in the way that we, our conscience says or that the stakes aren't high. I've never said that. I just simply have told you guys to keep the right things in mind. And yet every Sunday I have a fear of saying the wrong thing because so-and-so might leave. And it breaks my heart. And over the last six years of being a pastor, I've had to do that a lot with some people. There's a why in the road. They don't want me to go here, but I know scripture says I've got to go here. And as your pastor, I feel like in the last six years, I've had a good reputation of sticking with what I believe scripture said. I've not done it perfectly. I've messed it up. I've said things in an angry way at different times. I didn't have the right proportion. But my friends, that's the reality. If Grace Church dwindles down to a mere 50 people, and I can't get paid for the ministry anymore, that's the cost of following Jesus. If you get angry with me because of speaking the truth about things and it doesn't line up with your political party's statements, that's the cost of standing in this pulpit. That's a cost that I'm willing to bear because I love Jesus more than I love your opinions of me. And I hope you love Jesus more than your opinion. Just speaking candidly as a pastor, who through COVID, through the race riots, which I do think are two different things, just to be clear, there are angry rioters that have nothing to do with that, what's actually going on, and the fact that people don't treat people like people. We can be smart enough to see those are two different things, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm forced. Okay, what do I say? Do I say what Scripture wants me to say or do I 
say what I feel like everybody wants me to say. And every time the why in the road takes me to take up the cross. That's the, that's the scripture. Take up the cross. Take up the cross. The cross has been neutered in our days. We don't understand the true, uh, the true offensiveness of what the cross actually is. Back in those days, Jesus saying take up the cross was offensive and laughable and mockable. I mean, that, to, seriously, you're going to you're gonna equate following you with picking up a cross and carrying it? I mean, nobody died on the cross except for slaves and, the, and political terrorists. Those are the two people who died on the cross. It was the worst form of execution ever. Romans believed that whoever was killed on the cross were eternally shamed. Jews believed that whoever died on the cross were eternally cursed. So from whatever perspective, it was bad news bears to take up a cross. And yet Jesus says, unless you're willing to take up a cross, you are not worthy of me. Let me just put it into a modern context. Imagine you applying for a job, and at the top of the job it says, unless you're willing to sit in an electric chair daily as your desk chair, do not apply. How many of us would be willing to have an electric chair as our desk chair? None of us. And yet Jesus is simply saying that. Unless you're willing to be executed, skewered, nailed, beaten, speared, mocked, laughed at, don't follow me. We as an American church have underestimated the cost of discipleship. The stakes have been low up to this point. The cost has been low, but now the stakes are rising, and so is the cost. Will you follow, even if it means death on a cross? Will you follow, even if it means public skewering in the eyes of all? People to wag their heads at you when they walk by. Wherever we got the idea that following Jesus was easy and nice, it did not come from Jesus' own words. Discipleship demands a love for Jesus that exceeds love for even yourself. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The metaphor of finding one's life is this idea of saving one's life, preserving all the things that you like, your career, your material possessions, special amenities, reputation, prosperity, and comfort, and neglecting to obey Jesus. Trying to keep everything that you love and hold dear without having to actually cross that line and risk it all for Jesus. That's trying to save your life. Whoever tries to save one's life will lose it. That's the irony of it, isn't it? You know, I was reading about um, how Nixon felt at the Watergate. He believed so much in his political future that he wanted every conversation recorded. Every conversation recorded. And it's no irony that that's the way that he got out of office. Because they found the conversations that were recorded. Whoever tries to save their life, save their life, loses it. Whoever tries to sit there and store up and believes in their own in their own future, in the, in, in the sense of that we can build something great for ourselves and we can make it great on our own and we don't need God to do anything. We've got it. We're preserving it. Don't ask me to give it up. You will lose it. And yet Jesus says whoever loses it for his sake will gain life. Jesus says 
in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, he gives the very same speech. And he says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? My friends, do we make these trade-offs to where we're willing to have it all, and yet we're not willing to give it all for the sake of Jesus? Now, before I move on, just a little bit of an encouraging note here. Jesus never calls us to do something he did not first do himself. He says, take up the cross, and guess what he did? He took up the cross. He says, be willing to be killed, and guess what he was? Willing to be killed. He took up the cross. He died for your sins so that you could have eternity with God. He was buried, and then he was raised again. And yet, this gruesome death has guaranteed that we would have resurrection with him. My friends, Jesus calls you to take up the cross because he knows he can open your tomb. He tells you to lay it down because he knows it's all in his hands anyway. What do you have that you have not been given? That's a, that's a scripture. What do you have that you have not been given? What can you give that Jesus hasn't first given, gave? So I think an appropriate reflection on this text calls us to ask, are there things that we're not giving? Now, I, it can be argued, and I've heard it argued before, that these apply only to those that are going, those that are sent out, that this instruction applies to them. Well, it, it doesn't really. When you go to verse 40, Jesus turns to those who support those who are going out. Not every disciple can cross mountains, cross oceans, and go to other countries, but everybody can love Jesus by supporting those he sends. Here's what he says in verses 40 and 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus aligns himself with his gospel workers. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus said that you are persecuting me. I am Jesus whom you persecute. In the same way, when we welcome, when we send, when we support, when we are getting behind and praying for gospel workers, missionaries, church planters, those who have followed the call to go above and beyond, uh, to follow Jesus and to take the gospel to the nations, we are welcoming and supporting Christ and his mission. So don't sit there and say, this is only for these special elite Christians that go and not for me. No, he's got everybody in view here. You must take up your cross. That is a prerequisite of discipleship, whoever you are. You may never be in ministry. You may never be on the mission field. You may never be behind a pulpit. But even if you're not, you still carry a cross that you must be willing to die upon for the sake of Jesus. My friends, we are entering dangerous waters. And I have no doubt because of the sin of men and women that are in governance. But also because of the sins of the nation, because of the sins of individuals, because of sin of the world. This is the predicament we are in now. Now that we see that the stakes are raising. Now that the cost is elevated. Now that it's gone from a simple profession to actual possibility of opposition. Where's your commitment? What do you love?
Who do you love? What do you fear? I hope that our greatest fear will always only ever be God. I hope we don't fear whoever's in the presidency. I hope we don't fear whatever wild animal faces us. I hope we don't fear whatever future might come. I hope we can always say that we're more fearful of offending our good and gracious and holy God than anything else in the world. My hope is a church filled with people who fear rebelling against such grace more than they fear about any kind of future made by creatures who have limited authority. My prayer is that we will leave behind the Cheerios and go after the spiritual stake of the Word of God. We have to be taught how to go after this kind of spiritual meat and neglect the world's junk food. But I hope everyone in here will be humble enough to honestly assess do we love the right things? Do we fear the right things? If you do, praise God. You've only got God to thank for it. But if not, why stay there? If not, why remain in an unhealthy fear of shadows, in a, in a baseless boldness about flipping off the couch of politics and Facebook and social media and all these things that we do without fearing how God might perceive our lack of love? My hope is, is that we will fear and love Christ and by so doing enjoy a deeper discipleship and a sweeter walk with our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will be with us as we consider your word. Father, I, it's not easy. It's not tough. Father, um, sometimes it feels like dying on a cross here in the pulpit in front of all the people that I love. God, I have no doubt that the things that I said have made people probably uncomfortable, upset, frustrated, maybe even disagree with what I've said. But God, I pray at the end of the day, your spirit will show them from the truth of your word what you intend for them. God, I pray that you will be with us and that we will be Christians who all in unison bear the cross for the sake and beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.